Father, your word does your work. And apart from your word, what can we know? What can we do? Where can we turn? And so we pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, that your Holy Spirit would work within us to give us understanding, to give us conviction, to train us for works of righteousness, all for the glory of Christ. Please use this time not only to glorify Christ, but to strengthen your people, to edify us, that we may serve you more fully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of John. We're in John chapter 5 still. Got a few more weeks, probably two more weeks uh, left in John chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 40. Um, 31 to 40. The verses, the passage that we're going to be looking at today relates to the witness of the Father, to Christ's claims to be God incarnate. And of course, one of the most important issues when it comes to legal cases and matters is the testimony of witnesses. Now, there are two kinds of witnesses in our courts. There's an expert witness who can testify uh, to what can be scientifically proven or what can be forensic, uh, forensically uh, resolved uh, or demonstrated. And then there are eyewitnesses, people who actually saw what happened and can bear witness to that. Uh, with either kind of witness, uh, a forensic or, or expert witness uh, or an eyewitness, the point of having them is for them to share their knowledge uh, that's relevant to a case or to an accusation. So it's either used in defense of the accused or in the, the prosecution of the accused. But when a criminal trial takes place, it's the job of the prosecutor to convince the judge and the jury that the defendant is guilty. And while it's great for them to have just a whole bunch of evidence, there are actually few things that are more convincing, more persuasive, and thus more important than having witnesses. A witness's job is not to share their interpretation of the facts or to lie or to bend the truth or to alter the truth in any way. Their job is simply to tell the court what happened by answering the questions that are posed by the prosecuting or defending attorneys. So the importance of, uh, of witness testimony can actually be traced back to the Old Testament. Um, in Deuteronomy 19.15, we read this. Uh, it says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So this is a command that has never been rescinded. It's never been revoked, and thus it is still a valid command. And whenever this, this, this principle has not been put into practice, great injustice has prevailed. Um, one of the problems that I have with the social justice movement, or the social injustice movement, if you will, is that this is one of the principles that, the, that gets completely overlooked, 
that there need to be witnesses. It can't just be one person's word against another person's word. The purpose of this principle is to prevent baseless accusations in which you have one person's word going up against another person's word, and there's no way to determine which one is correct. We saw this recently, um, if you remember, as, as a nominee for the Supreme Court was accused by a person of doing some really horrible things, but it only boiled down to being a case of he said, she said, because there were no witnesses at all. This passage is trying to prevent that type of thing, and when it's put into practice, it does prevent that kind of thing from happening. But this principle from the Old Testament was carried over and put into practice also in the New Testament. As Jesus was instructing the disciples on exercising discipline in the context of the local church, the process that Jesus gave us starts at the individual level, going to one's brother or sister in Christ and and confronting them about their sin. But Jesus then says this, he says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. There's that principle put into, put into practice in the New Testament. So witness testimony is very, very important to say the very least. So in our study of the gospel according to John, we spent the past few weeks uh, looking at Jesus defending himself against the accusations of the Jewish leaders who had accused him of breaking the Sabbath laws by healing the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Uh, And part of Jesus' defense, as we've seen, was to claim to be God. In fact, he claimed to be God incarnate a total of seven times, all in rapid succession, just boom, 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 claiming to be God, claiming to be equal to the Father. This passage uh, thus serves as one of the richest in all of Scripture in terms of demonstrating Christ's perfect unity with the Father. Nobody who was there, nobody who was there to hear Jesus defending himself missed the fact that Jesus claimed to be one with God. Now, people miss it today when they read their Bibles, but none of them missed it because they were infuriated. And we're told explicitly why they were infuriated, because Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Uh, we can imagine how, how angry, how, how their faces twisted as they watched him commit what they believed to be the highest of all blasphemies. And yet, while they couldn't disprove his claims, The question that we have to ask, I guess, is was there reason for them to accept his claims? What kind of evidence would be necessary to support that kind of a claim? I mean, thousands of people throughout history have claimed to be God. And some of them have done a really good job of of fleecing people, of, of completely fooling their followers. But Jesus was different. Jesus was different, different, continuing to argue in a very formal style. Again, uh, that, that leads me to suspect that this was actually a formal gathering of the Sanhedrin as they were uh, p- pressing formal charges against Jesus. Jesus calls in now what you might call his star witness uh, in the passage that we'll be looking at today. And that witness is the witness of the Father whose testimony demanded not only that Jesus be cleared of the charges, not only demanded that Jesus be found completely innocent of what he's being accused of, but it also demands our faith in Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world. Now before we start, 
I want to make one very important observation. It is hermeneutically, in other words, uh, the science of, of interpreting Scripture, it is hermeneutically undeniable that Jesus claimed to have sovereign authority over election and salvation in the previous passage. He claimed to have the right, back in verse 21, he claimed to have the right to be able to save whomever he wishes. That's, that's undeniable. It's in black and white language. And he claimed that the dead who hear his voice will live. But he makes it clear then that not all of the dead will hear his voice until the final day of judgment. So we see a passage there that demonstrates Christ's complete, absolute sovereignty in salvation. And yet, if you look down at verse 34 in the passage that we'll be looking at today, Jesus says in verse 34, that the purpose of him defending himself and testifying before these Jewish leaders is that they might be saved. So there are two great theological errors. Uh, One is you can emphasize man's responsibility so much that you deny God's sovereignty in salvation. That is called Pelagianism, which is an ancient heresy. Uh, A lesser form of it is semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism. Uh, But on the other end, you can make the error of emphasizing God's sovereignty in salvation so much that you deny man's responsibility as if it has to be completely one or the other. So in the previous passage, we saw God's sovereignty in election and salvation. But in the passage we'll be looking at today, we see Jesus touching on man's responsibility to believe. Don't you love that the Bible puts these two great doctrines side by side, that God is sovereign and man is responsible The Bible just puts them side by side and says they're both true. It's a mystery exactly how these two truths fit together, but both sides are undeniably taught throughout Scripture. But here's where people get confused, and here's where people get false or maybe even dark and evil ideas about God when they say that only one side is true and that the other side can't be true. They're both equally true. God is sovereign over salvation, And yet, man is responsible for his actions. He's responsible for believing. But part of the point of his defense, part of the point of of saying that he's saying this so that these people might be saved, is that he's not just trying to win an argument here. He's presenting evidence before these unbelieving Jewish leaders, showing them their responsibility to repent and believe in him. So the point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, verses 31 to 40, is that because the Father bears witness to the Son through John the Baptist, through miracles, and through the witness of God's holy word, we have an obligation to believe and to submit to Christ in faith. Every person has a responsibility to put faith in Jesus. So we start with verses 31 and 32. Jesus is continuing his defense before the Sanhedrin, uh, presumably. He says, verses 31 and 32, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, thinking of the, the whole context here, this, this whole passage, all of the second half of chapter 5. Jesus has made some very startling claims. 
if you're in the, the shoes of these Jewish leaders. He's claimed, Jesus has claimed to be one with the Father in nature, in work, in knowledge, in ability, in sovereignty, and in authority to judge. But Jesus says that there is another whose testimony corroborates his claim, whose testimony corroborates his own testimony, and he knows that this other person's testimony is true. Now, we should understand, some people look at this and they see that John the Baptist comes next, and so they think that Jesus must be leading into uh, talking about John the Baptist. And I would say he's not talking about John the Baptist here. John the Baptist's ministry has already ended at this point. So the fact that Jesus uses the present ongoing tense, he says he testifies, not he testified. that, that, That would be true of John, he testified. But Jesus said he testifies, means that it can't be John the Baptist that he's referring to. So to whom is he referring here? He's referring to God the Father. So this is simply a continuation of Jesus expounding on his unity with the Father. He wouldn't claim something about himself that the Father wouldn't claim about him as well. Remember, the, the, what we saw in the previous verse, he claimed in the last verse that he only does the will of the Father. And so we want to read verse 31 in light of verse 30. And when we do that, we see that Jesus is saying that if he testified about himself apart from the will of the Father, his testimony, Jesus' testimony, would not be true. Why not? In A.W. Pink's words, he said, quote, because such would be insubordination. The Son can no more bear witness of himself independently of the Father than he can of himself work independently of the Father, end quote. And so thus we should understand that the three witnesses to the veracity, the truthfulness of Christ's claims to be God uh, are all witnesses which God himself has ordained and provided so that people would believe. The first witness is John the Baptist. Look at verses 33 to 35 with me. He says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So when Jesus says, you have sent to John, he appears to be referring to the incident at the beginning of John's book when a delegation was sent by the Jews to inquire and to investigate John the Baptist's ministry uh, back in chapter 1. When, when they asked John who he claimed to be, he told them in chapter 1, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. That was his answer. And the Jewish leaders just kind of accepted it. They, 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 they didn't try to refute him. They didn't stand there and, and argue with him. They, they didn't try to deny his claims to be this prophet sent from God. They didn't even try to. And his purpose and his message was to call people to repent and to believe in the one who would come after him, who was Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what he did the following day when John saw Jesus walking alongside the banks of the Jordan and he proclaimed the very message that he had been born and sent to proclaim. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus here in our, in our passage in, in chapter 5, Jesus is essentially saying, behold, exhibit A, 
John the Baptist. He says of John, he has testified to the truth. But Jesus says something very interesting after that. He says, the testimony which I receive is not from man. What does that mean? What he's saying is John wasn't sent by man. And he he was sent for man, but he was sent by God. He was appointed by God. So, So John wasn't sent because Jesus needed John the Baptist to testify of him or any other human being to testify of him. Rather, it was the Jews and it was the unbelieving world which needed the testimony of John the Baptist to bear witness of Christ. And Jesus reminds them that they actually liked John to some degree. He says, he was a lamp that was burning and, the shining, and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in that light. So John himself was not the light, right? Jesus is the light. But John's purpose had been kindled by a divine source outside of himself. A candle doesn't light itself. A candle has to be lit by something outside of itself. In John's case, he was lit by Jesus himself. How odd, though, that the Jewish leaders were willing for a while to rejoice in John's light, and yet, as the true light stands before them, testifying of himself, their hearts and their minds are only filled with malice and contempt. And they really weren't so different from so many people who go to church today and they'll nod and they'll clap and, and they'll stay as long as the music continues to move them and as long as the word uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't do anything to, to make them feel uncomfortable. But when the music stops moving them and when the word of God starts to confront and challenge and convict them, their hearts are out the door and their feet are soon to follow. But the question that Jesus is forcing these people to ask themselves is, was John right? Was John the Baptist right? Was he a true prophet? Because a true prophet can't lie. Was he a true prophet? Is Jesus truly God incarnate as he has claimed to be, as Jesus has claimed to be, and as John the Baptist has claimed him to be? So, which is it? Sanhedrin. Is John the Baptist a true prophet, and thus he speaks the truth, and thus Jesus is God? Or is he a false prophet? Because it can't be both. And as Jesus asks these questions, puts these questions in front of them, the fact that this was recorded in sacred scripture means that we have to come up with an answer for this too. We too must do something with the fact that after 400 years of God being silent toward Israel, this man rose up and created quite a stir among the Jews, and he proclaimed and heralded Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to do something with that. Now, if you survey history, if you look at, at, at uh, faithful people 
who would shine brightly throughout history. It has always been believers who were sold out to the glory of Christ, putting everything aside for His glory. Those are the ones who have shined and who have burned brightly and made a difference in the world. You want to know who doesn't make a difference in the world? Is people who claim to be Christians. And yet they think and they act, and they talk, and they value things just like everybody else in the world. If you look at William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Knox, scores of other men and women who were willing to give their lives up, who were willing to say, I don't need a good reputation before men, I just need to proclaim the truth of God. Those are the people who made a difference in the world. They gave up their lives. They gave up their reputations, if necessary, for the glory of Christ, and they often paid the ultimate price as martyrs. Under the reigns of uh, Henry VIII and Mary of England, the Protestant reformers faced incredible persecution as dozens upon dozens upon dozens of Christians were burned at the stake for being faithful men and women of God. But that's what changed the world. It wasn't when... When, when the Christians finally got somebody who was a Christian to be their king, no. <laughs> the, the hearts of, of, of the men and women in that time were open to the gospel because of the persecution of Christians. They weren't pouring water on a fire, they were pouring oil on a fire by burning these people at the stake. You see, friends, a, a, a candle burns, but as it burns... The candle itself must be consumed for the purpose of giving light. You want to know what the world needs today and and yesterday and 500 years ago and, and 500 years from now? What the world needs is not liberal politics. What the world needs is not conservative politics. No, what the world needs is men and women of God who are willing to be sold out for the glory of Christ above everything else in life. Men and women who are willing to yield themselves completely to the truth of God's word and shine as lights in the world as John the Baptist did, no matter what the cost is. One of my friends posted on Twitter yesterday, John the Baptist lost his head for standing for God's institution of marriage. Kevin DeYoung said this. He said, people will notice your faith not when it gets you something, but when it costs you something. Let me ask you, friends. Does your faith cost you anything? Because it should. Because our human nature is so inclined against the flesh and the spirit of God, or the the spirit of God, The flesh is so inclined against the Spirit of God that it's going to cost us something. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It it costs something to follow Jesus. It costs something to be a light shining brightly. The famous missionary Jim Elliott prayed this. He said, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. End quote. His journal recorded the way that, uh, that he would often search and probe his own heart. He wrote, quote, Am I ignitable? 
God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be aflame. End quote. That's what the world needs today. People who live and think like that. So I ask you today, friends, for those of you who have made a profession of faith in Christ, are you ignitable? Do you desire to shine brightly for God and to bear witness for Him in this ever-increasingly dark world? You know, I, I hate to see the way that, uh, that darkness is creeping into Western culture. I, I hate that as much as anybody. Uh, but at the same time, there's a chance to rejoice here because we have a chance to shine more brightly in our day than Christians in our country did even 30 or 40 years ago because faithful Christians are so much more radically different than the world than 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. There's a greater gap. And so there's a chance for us to shine more brightly, but we must be sold out for the glory of Christ. We can't drift with the world. We must be founded on the Word of God and what He has revealed in His Word. Let me ask you this. If you were put on trial today for being a faithful witness to Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Second question. What might be preventing you from being ignitable? Or if you are ignitable, what might be preventing you from being more ignitable? May God deliver us from the things which prevent us from shining as brightly as we've been called to. May he free us from apathy, from complacency, from a greater desire to please man than to please God, or anything else that renders us less useful unto God than wet firewood. We need to be more like John the Baptist, friends. He didn't minister so that people would walk away after they listened to him, feeling like they were entertained or feeling like they enjoyed their time. No, he ministered for the same purpose that Jesus did, so that people might be saved. The Jewish leaders rejoiced for a while in John's light, and yet they rejected the object of his message. And by doing so, they were only storing up judgment and condemnation against themselves before God. So the first witness that the Father used to testify of Jesus was John the Baptist. The second piece of evidence provided by God was the miracles of Christ. Look at verse 36 with me. He continues saying, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. <clears throat> he's talking about his miracles. That's what he's defending himself against, was performing this miracle, working this miracle on the Sabbath. Uh, but, but he says, these are the very works that I do. Those are the works that he came to do, to, to work miracles. But why? What's the purpose of miracles? I, I think people get this wrong a lot. People treat miracles as if the miracle is an end in and of itself. It's easy to look at, say, for example, the, the miracle of Jesus healing the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda and think, well, the purpose of that was just to show how compassionate and how able Jesus is to meet the physical needs of people. 
Now, I, I won't deny that that's part of the picture. That, that's, of course, that's part of the picture. But it's a very small part of the picture. We've seen that there was a much, much deeper message behind that miracle. And that is, it was a picture of Christ's sovereignty, his sovereign authority in election and salvation. So the miracle was given for the purpose not of just meeting this guy's needs and showing compassion. No, the, the purpose of the miracle was to testify about Christ. That's what Jesus is referring to in the, in the immediate context. He refers to his signs and his miracles as work. In fact, it's the work that the Father has given him to accomplish. The question that Jesus is, is forcing these, these people to consider is this. Why would God work a miracle uh, in the healing of this, this crippled man if doing so was forbidden because it was the Sabbath? Because only God, they, they recognize, only God can do something supernatural like that. Only God can do miracles. Uh, have you noticed that not once throughout this whole chapter has anybody denied that Jesus completely healed this man? Nobody has denied it. Nobody has, has said, well, I, I kind of doubt it. They don't deny it at all. They just don't like it. They just don't like it. But it's there. It, it's, it's been put right in their faces. And what are they doing? They're just saying, I don't like it. I don't want it. I, I don't want to believe in it. Even though it's right there in front of their faces. And Jesus says it's a greater testimony than the testimony of John the Baptist. What are they going to do with this key testimony from the Father? See, they knew that Jesus had performed all kinds of signs and miracles. They, if you remember back in chapter 3, that's what motivated Nicodemus to come to Jesus. And so they knew uh, that Jesus worked miracles. And the fact that they knew that Jesus did perform miracles, and yet they don't take that fact to its logical conclusion, that is, that the Father is validating Christ's identity as God through those miracles, it's just an indication of the hardness of their hearts. They're willing to be entertained by it, but they're not willing to believe. Their, their hearts aren't as hard and as cold, though, as they will be. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead later in John's book, and the response of the Jewish leaders, again, is not to believe, even though they've seen the greatest miracle that they could possibly imagine up to that point. Now, the response of the Jewish leaders is to conspire not only to kill Jesus, but they also conspire to kill John the Baptist as well. We read in John chapter 12, verse 11, uh, because on account of him, many of Lazarus, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And the response of these leaders is not to say, you know what, maybe there's something to his claims because this is impossible and only God can do this. No, their response is to say, we're going to kill Jesus and we should get rid of Lazarus while we're at it. So what are they going to do with Jesus' miracles? What will they do with exhibit B? What are you going to do with Jesus' miracles? I mean, we know what people like Thomas Jefferson did with them. He removed them from his Bible. Most people highlight their Bibles in yellow and pink and all kinds of colors so that you can read the text. He highlighted his Bible in black so that he couldn't read the miracles. He just ignored it. 
wanted to close his eyes and disbelieve. That, that is the antithesis of intellectual honesty. It's the, the very opposite of being intellectually honest. But this is what so many people do. that They choose to be intellectually dishonest about it. Of course, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the fact that after three days, Jesus raised himself from the dead? Are, are you going to say you just don't believe it happened? Because that defense has been so completely obliterated. I mean, if it was even a slight possibility that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, you wouldn't see Paul writing to the church in Corinth saying, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. Uh, especially after he had just reminded them earlier in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, after, that after appearing to the disciples, Jesus, quote, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, some of those people who witnessed Jesus are among you, O church of Corinth. So he's essentially saying we've got 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and I'm challenging you to talk to them if you have any doubts or questions about it. He wouldn't issue that kind of challenge if it was even remotely possible that Jesus did not raise from the dead. See, God is a God of the supernatural, of the miraculous the miracles aren't given anywhere near as much for our physical benefit as they are for our spiritual benefit. There is a rich, important message to each one of the miracles. In the first half of John's gospel narrative, uh, there are actually a total of seven miracles, each of which reveals or testifies to something about Christ. The first miracle, if you remember, back in chapter 2, was Jesus turning water into wine, revealing Jesus as the one who is able to fill our joy supernaturally. The second miracle is that the healing of, uh, was the healing in chapter 4 of the royal official's son uh, at the end of chapter 4. The purpose of that one, of that miracle, was to show that Jesus had power over life and death. Uh, the third miracle was the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, which illustrated uh, sovereign election and Christ's sovereign authority over salvation. The fourth miracle, which is going to be in chapter 6, the next chapter, will be the feeding of the 5,000, which will demonstrate Jesus as the only one who can satisfy the deepest hungers of the human soul. The fifth miracle, same chapter, Jesus is going to walk on water. And this demonstrates Jesus' authority over the forces of nature and the laws of physics. Sixth, Jesus will heal a man who was born blind in chapter 9. And that's going to illustrate man's uh, natural spiritual blindness and Christ's power to overcome man's natural spiritual blindness. And finally, seventh, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating that Jesus is sovereign over both life and death, and that the final enemy, death, had no power, no authority over him and would be defeated. There's a message to every single miracle. You can take it at face value and miss that message. But the message is there. That's what Jesus is saying. There is more than enough evidence to the truthfulness of the miracles. And yet, the people of his time would cry out for his death on the cross again 
out of hard-heartedness. See, if you will not believe the miracles, friends, then you stand amongst the people who were calling out for his crucifixion. John testified of Jesus, supporting Jesus' claims to be God, and the miracles of Christ testified to Jesus' claim to be God as well, even more so. But there is a third piece of testimony, again, given by the Father. Let's look at verses 37 to 40. Jesus continues saying, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. It must have been shocking for these scholarly, educated, prestigious rabbis to hear someone tell them that they didn't have the word of God abiding in them or dwelling within them. After all, these are people who had spent their entire lives studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. And yet, Jesus says, you're doing all this stuff, but it's only outward. Inwardly, you don't have the word of God dwelling in you. So, what a terrible thing. What a a horrible, scary thought that somebody could do all these things, could, could know the scriptures verbatim, and yet not have the word of God abiding in them. Jesus is confronting his accusers with the greatest testimony of all, the testimony that God had given in his word. So people could, you could accuse John of just being out of his mind. He, he, maybe he's crazy. I mean, after all, he ate locusts. You know, he, he could be crazy. Uh, they, they could ignore the fact that Jesus performed signs and miracles which, which attested and, and testified to his deity. What were they going to do with the word of God? Are they going to pretend that God's word didn't testify of him throughout? Because it does. These men believed the scriptures were from God, but they had so perverted it and so badly misunderstood it that they really didn't understand it. And why didn't they understand it? Because they hadn't believed in Christ. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, about Jesus so this is actually one of the reasons. He's talking about the Old Testament here, right? And those, those are the scriptures that they memorized. It's one of the reasons I love preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. It's because they testify of Christ. He, he, he's in the shadows. He, he's, he's all over the place in the Old Testament. They testify of, about him absolutely everywhere. And that's the primary purpose of the scriptures, Whether we're talking about the Old Testament or about the New Testament, they don't only testify of Christ, but they direct us to him. See, the law of God, the law that God had given Israel had 613 commandments. What was their purpose? Was it to make them a better people? 
It wasn't primarily to make them a better people, although the law does have a purpose in training and restraining the human conscience. No, the, 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 the primary purpose was to show them and to show us that we are in bondage to sin and incapable of doing what God requires. In fact, we don't even want to. We look at it as a chore by nature. And thus showing us not only that we're in bondage to sin, but that our greatest need was for God to provide the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins, a need that was met and fulfilled completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The primary purpose of God's law and God's word, friends, is to be a tutor that points us to Christ, a tutor that teaches us of our need for a Savior, that informs our understanding about ourselves and informs our understanding about God, directing our hearts and minds to the one and only Savior whom God has provided himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, though, what does man by nature do with this knowledge? What does man by knowledge, by, by nature, do with this revelation that God has given about man and about God, with the truth revealed in Scripture? He suppresses it. He suppre- That's exactly what we see happening in this passage today. He suppresses it. He closes his eyes and plugs his ears and la, 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 I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to look. You can't convince me. That's why Paul writes to the, to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians, that the natural man cannot understand the Scriptures because man, by nature, suppresses the truth about himself and about God as revealed in Scripture. That's exactly what these men have done. But let's not be mistaken and think that by nature we wouldn't do the exact same thing. Everybody does. That's, that's what everybody does by nature. God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. How do these two things fit together? There's, there's certainly an element of mystery, but it starts with understanding that man's natural inclination is to turn away from God and to suppress the truth about God in his unrighteousness. God's not the one who suppresses the truth. So who's going to be held accountable for that? Man is. Man has a responsibility to believe. God doesn't suppress the truth for them by nature. We do that ourselves. And thus man by nature is incapable of doing anything good and pleasing to God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.8. He says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you miss or if you deny that, you're never, ever, ever going to understand how God's absolute sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility to believe are both simultaneously equally true. This is why our greatest need is for God's grace to work in us to replace the old nature, which hates God and which cannot please God, and to replace it with a new nature that loves God, that desires God, that pleases and strives to please God. Those are not natural things. It takes the new nature. See, friends, it's possible 
for you to come to church every single week. It's possible for you to study the Bible every single day. It's possible for you to even pray often and very diligently and to still have your heart a million billion miles away from God. And Jesus' accusers are proof of that. That's certainly one of the things that we have to see in our passage today. The real question is this, do you believe that Jesus is who he's claimed to be? Who John the Baptist claimed for him to be? Who the miracles attest for him to be? And who God's word clearly reveals him to be? Because if you don't believe in Jesus, you you will not, you do not, you cannot understand any of these pieces of witness either. So the tables, if you've noticed, the tables have been turned on the Jews here. You see that when a person is falsely accused, his accusers will suffer the same fate of the person they're accusing if they're accusing falsely. It's from Deuteronomy 19, as we just saw earlier. And so these people, you have to understand, are heaping judgment upon themselves. They go from being accusers to being accused, and rightfully so. Jesus said that the testimony was given so that they might be saved, but this is the final indictment. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Like us, their only hope is God's grace. Jesus didn't need to to look miraculously or supernaturally into their hearts to know this. He only needed to look at the testimony that's revealed in God's word. Friends, you need more life than you have within yourselves by nature. We all do. You need eternal life. Eternal life is given to all who come to Christ for it. So come to him and you'll find that the door to his house is unlocked and wide open for all to enter in. Everyone who believes enters in freely. Everyone who thirsts for mercy will find that he has more than we need. And yet it's also true that if you respond to him in faith, it's because God's grace has already worked a miracle in your heart. For as Christ will say in the next chapter, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is sovereign over salvation. And yet man has a responsibility to, to believe in Christ. And so if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not put off coming to Christ because it won't get any easier. It will get more difficult. Rather, come to him freely and he will never cast you away. Because the Father bears witness to the Son through John the Baptist, through miracles, through the witness of God's holy word, we have an obligation to believe and to submit ourselves to Christ in faith. Every person has a responsibility to believe in Jesus. Have you done that? What do you make of the testimony of the Father through John the Baptist, through the miracles and through the scriptures? They testify of and they direct us straight to Christ, according to Christ's testimony. But to ignore or to deny or to disbelieve these pieces of witness testimony is just to heap 
judgment and condemnation upon yourself. But come to him in faith and eternal life, an endless supply of grace, the remission, the forgiveness of sins, the adoption as a child of God, every heavenly blessing, all the promises of God, they are yours entirely by God's grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Forgive us, O Lord, for times when we have doubted or questioned it. Forgive us simply because Jesus died for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn your forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to merit or deserve redemption but it's given freely through Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for drawing us to Christ that we may receive it. Father, we pray that you would give us courage to be lights that shine brightly in our culture, in our world. Father, we confess to you that as the culture drifts, and grows darker, it is so easy for us to do the same. To only track a little bit behind them and to feel like that's good enough. Father, teach us to stand on your word alone. Teach us to ground ourselves in your word. Teach us to build our houses on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. To be our refuge to be our strength, to be our salvation, that Christ may be glorified in our lives, not because we're with the world, but because we're so different, because we're being faithful to you. But Lord, we confess in our hearts that we can't do that without your grace working in us. So we thank you for it. We ask you for more, more courage, more opportunities to share the gospel. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.